catch me if you can. Catch me if you can. It sounds like a playground challenge as kids begin a game of tag. Or the audacious challenge of a teenage girl to a pursuing admirer. Catch me if you can can be the challenge of a young man racing his hot rod car on city streets. Or the words of the bank robber taking off in a getaway car. Catch me if you can. Catch me if you can was the title of the movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio. It's based loosely on the true story about Frank Abagnale Jr. who spent years posing as various people. An airline pilot, an attorney, even a doctor pretending to be who he was not. But mostly, Catch Me If You Can was about stealing. It's about stealing millions of dollars by forging checks. And the challenge throughout the story of Frank Abagnale was, was always, catch me if you can. Catch me if you can seems to be the philosophy of a lot of people today, from, from company executives and corrupt CEOs to day traders of mutual funds or hedge funds on Wall Street. It's all about catch me if you can. And if I don't get caught, I didn't steal anything. I did nothing wrong. Stealing. Stealing. For most of us, when we think about stealing or the prohibition against stealing in God's top 10, we think about old-fashioned burglary or sticking up a 7-Eleven or armed bank robberies or, or movies about stealing like The Heist or Ocean's 12 or 13 or stealing money from casinos or bad guys or Gone in 60 Seconds or The Italian Job or White Collar. Like Robin Hood, these guys steal from the bad and give to the good. Catch me if you can. But stealing is far more than burglary, robbery, or white-collar fraud. And today, I would like to look at the Eighth Commandment. Remember, God's top ten is about relationship. It's about relationship. This one commandment is perhaps very obvious in how we relate to other people. And few of us, fine, upstanding citizens that we are, would think for a moment that we are guilty of breaking this commandment. But this commandment was not written only to burglars or car thieves, swindlers, armed robbers, and white-collar criminals. It was written to us, all of us. Us? Me? Yes, let's look at Catch Me If You Can. Exodus 20, verse 15. If you're looking for it in the Bible in the rack in front of you, it's on page 60. Exodus 20, verse 15. Very simple. You shall not steal. Shall not steal. Everybody knows that we can go home, right? Okay. You shall. The simple commandment seems simple enough. This commandment addresses the issue of property. Of property. Theft is taking or keeping what is not ours. Maxie Dunham writes, the Bible defends the right to own property, but it also pronounces judgment upon those who injure others in the pursuit of property. Jesus added a second dimension to this command when he said in Mark 10, 19, do not defraud, do not defraud. Now, if we're to understand property rights and what it means to steal, we must first understand, understand the Bible's attitude towards ownership, ownership. Let's look at number two, the principles of ownership and property. In America, we take ownership for granted. Since the beginning of our nation, well, over 200 years ago, Americans were given the rights of ownership. One could purchase and own land. 
Or with the Homestead Act, one could stake a claim, live on a section of land, work the land, and then own it. It was, it was then yours. It belonged to you. We have the right to own a home, own a car. You can own your own business. You can sell your company to the public or to stockholders. We've even in the past owned people in the tragedy of slavery. Ownership. Many countries of the world have never had or still do not have the right of ownership, of private ownership. Until recently, all things in Russia were owned by the state. Places in Eastern Europe, China, Asia, many places have restrictions on private ownership. Well, the Bible is full of examples of private ownership. It is. In, Old, in the Old Testament, letter A, said the Israelites and others in the Old Testament bought and sold property. They owned homes. They owned money, possessions, cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys, all kinds of animals, silver and gold, and they bought and sold crops. Private ownership was a practice and an assumption, and property and ownership rights were protected by laws. This, the Eighth Commandment, and laws in Leviticus protected property rights. When we get to the New Testament, we also find property rights in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, we find that people were selling property and donating the proceeds. Acts 5.4 speaks about property being owned and the money of the sale and property being at the owner's disposal. There was never a mandate in the Old Testament or the New Testament that dictated that everything was shared equally if you were going to follow Jesus. It doesn't say we give up the rights of private ownership. It was a concept that is very biblical, ownership. But there are some deeper truths that we need to see that demonstrate a more fundamental, fundamental approach to, private, to the principle of ownership. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17, it says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created, Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Then James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. So what does this tell us about ownership? Number one, all things were created by God. All things were created by God. It's money, possessions, land, time, plants, animals, people, the oceans, the forests, the rivers, all natural resources, everything, everything that exists was created by God. And number two, all things were created for God. All things were created for God. All of it was created for God's purposes, God's use, and God's plan. Human nature kind of reacts to this timeless truth. What are the first words we learn as a baby? First words that are uttered as a baby. I know it's dada. It always, it's, it's always dada. I always like that. But after dada, the next word that is uttered by babies is mine. Mine. It's just, you know, we like to own. We want to have it. It's, it's mine. That's, it's part of human nature. We think we own everything, and it's all about me. Mine. We think all things were created for me, but it wasn't. It was, it was by God and for God. And then number three, all good gifts are given by God. Any good gift we have, James 1.17, we read that a minute ago. So God is the one who's given us everything we have, life, family, children, job, health, homes, businesses, car, money, all possessions were given to us 
by God. Didn't we earn it? No. Well, no. They were gifts by God. And number four, God gave all these gifts to people. God gave all these gifts to people. Genesis 9, 1 to 3 says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth, all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. They're given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants. I now give you everything. And the carnivores said, amen, amen. Here we go. There's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian, okay? Just, in, just don't impose your diet on other people. It's up to you, okay? Just to let you know. So we find that all things were created by God. All things were created for God. All good gifts were given by God. And God gave these gifts to people. So what role do we play then? Who are we? Who are we? We are then... Stewards, stewards. Let's look at the principle of stewardship, Roman numeral three. A steward is defined as one who manages another's property. One who manages another's property. If we're gonna talk about stealing, we have to determine who the owner is. And the owner is God. The owner is God. We just manage it. God gives it all to us to steward or manage. Now, there's a, a, a passage we don't have time to look at this morning. Most of you may be familiar with it, but I want to just talk about it just a minute. It's in Matthew 25, and it's about this man going on a journey, um, and he calls his servants, and he entrusts his property to them. He's going, taking off, and he gives his property to stewards, people who are going to take care of it for him. And one he gave five talents of money, another he gave two talents of money, the third he gave one talent of money. He gave to each one according to his ability, and then the owner went on this long journey. And then he returned at some point in time, and he discovered the one that had been given five talents multiplied it to another five talents. The one that two talents gained two more talents. The one that had one talent, he had hid his money in the ground. Now, there's a, there's a whole sermon on itself, but we don't have time to look into that. But when the owner returned, it says he settled his accounts. He settled his accounts. Now, note, in this story, the ownership never changed. The stewards were responsible only to manage the money. Now, when we look at that and apply that to our lives, God gives each of us something, usually many somethings or gifts. We've been given many, everything that we have, no matter what gift you have or what talents you have or what possessions you have, God has given many gifts to every one of us. And the question is not how much have I been given, but what am I doing with what I've been given? What am I doing with what I've been given? The principle is this. We are stewards given gifts by God to manage for him. We are stewards given gifts by God to manage for him. Therefore, ultimately, since God owns everything, we simply management all, and manage, all stealing is actually stealing from God. All stealing is actually stealing from God. Because stealing supplants God's authority to give what he wants to those he chooses. All sin is against God, and all stealing, the breaking of the Eighth Commandment, is stealing from God. Stealing is, in essence, taking something from one steward, God's rightful property possession, and giving to that steward 
and taking it for one's own selfish benefit. Walter Kaiser writes, the Eighth Commandment prohibits stealing from either a person or an object. This commandment recognizes that the Lord owns everything in heaven and earth and only he can give it or take it away. Okay, that's the foundation. So how do we steal? How do we steal? Now, and does it include more than just physical observable property and acts? Well, let's look at how we steal. Letter four, or number four. How we steal from God. How we steal. One way we steal from God, letter A, is poor stewardship. Poor stewardship. A steward is to manage his, his master's resources and then return them to him. How can we be poor stewards? Number one, poor money management. Poor money management. We waste money or borrow heavily, pay huge interest on debts. Carelessness. Easy come, easy go. Wasting or squandering God's resources. If we, if we practice poor money management, we are squandering what God has given us, and that's a form of, of stealing from God. Number two, poor property management. Poor property management. Allowing a house to get run down, abusing or not taking care of God's material gifts, bicycle, clothes, equipment, automobiles, poor maintenance. We say, I bought them, therefore I can do whatever I please with them. Actually, we bought them with money that God gave to us. Poor stewardship does not bring the return to God. Yeah, you know, clothes wear out. They go out of style too, but clothes wear out. Cars eventually quit running, but do we do our best to take care of God's good gifts? Do we practice good property management? I know cars only go so many miles. They used to go about 50,000 miles. Now it's about 200,000. Did you know that if they really wanted to, I've talked to engineers, they said they could make cars last a lot longer, but then you wouldn't need one every once in a while. You'd have to buy one. So that, that's, that's a whole different thing. We'll talk about some other day. Then there's poor people management. Poor people management, number three. Abuse of children, abusing one's spouse or family. We can invest wisely in our families or abuse and defraud. We can actually steal from them. We can rob them of the, the love and care they deserve. We are called to love and to care. That's why they call us husband. A husband is to take care of and nurture the spouse, to care for the children. While attending a marriage seminar on communication, Jim and his wife listened to the instructor declare this. He said, it is essential that husbands and wives know the things that are important to each other. Then he looked at the men and he said, for instance, can you name your wife's favorite flower? Jim stopped for a moment and leaned over and touched his wife's arm gently and whispered, Pillsbury all-purpose, isn't it? <laughs> the rest of the story is not so pleasant. <laughs> Poor stewardship, carelessness, or indifference. So what, what do I have to give back to God? Now, the second way we can, we can steal is, letter B, to defraud people, to defraud people. There's an interesting passage in Colossians 3.22. The Apostle Paul writes this. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, Paul is writing this to uh, a society that practiced slavery. He never condoned slavery. He just acknowledged that it was there. But there's a principle here about people who have power or people who are under power, basically. And that can be an employee or an employer. We are all working for somebody, pretty much. Or we are supervising somebody. There's always someone in that, in, in that part. And... And so when he's talking about, he's talking about principles of working for someone. Now, in that, in that day, by the way, slavery was not so much a racial issue as it was a political issue. One of the deep, deep misunderstandings of slavery is that it was racial. It was really political. Country A won a war over country B, and if they won, then they would enslave them. Whoever won the war was in charge at the time. So it, it, it transcended all kinds of things, but our history here is different um, than, than other countries in his, historically. But for us, a slavery is not the issue. The issue is, can we or how can we steal from or defraud people? Let's start with an employee. If you're an employee, Every one of us probably is an employee or has been. As an employee, we can steal or defraud by not working for all the wages we get paid. We get a full day's pay for less than a full day's work. Or cheating on timesheets, taking longer breaks than allowed, not putting in a full day's work or not working hard to earn our wages. Stealing or submitting mileage or reimbursement claims that are too high in order to get more money. Padding our expensive account. There are a lot of creative ways that we can actually, as an employee, that we can defraud or we can steal from our employer. Is that stealing? Yes, it is. How about as an employer? How can an employer steal? By not pay paying your employee what he or she is worth. Defrauding them of fair wages. If we don't pay our employees fairly, then we are stealing from them, we defraud them. Joy Davidman writes this, I quote, owning capital and employing labor are not theft unless we fail to treat the laborer as worthy of his hire. Thus making a profit is not theft unless we make it by usury or some other form of defrauding others. Thus taxation is not theft unless the government fails to return to us in services and benefits and protection the equivalent of what it takes away. We won't talk about that. The thief is not only he who steals my purse, but also he who steals my trade. He who underpays me or he who overcharges me. He who taxes me for his own advantage instead of mine. He who sells me trash instead of honest goods. The ultimate form of theft undoubtedly is slaveholding, which denies a man even the ownership of his body. That's where J Joy Davidman talks about slavery. So how do we steal? Let us see, selling worthless goods. Selling worthless goods. How many of you have, have been called on at least one salesman or solicited over the phone or emailed or internet for worthless goods? Anybody? N it never happens. Yeah, exactly. I'm not talking about honest salespeople. There are a lot of great honest people out there. But sometimes they're selling you 
a timeshare you don't need. I, I don't know, whatever it is. We get these phone calls all the time. Some justify their actions of this type by stealing, saying, they decided to buy it, not me. Trying to get something for nothing. That could be that. David Men says, a bitter man once said that the great American dream was getting something for nothing. Getting something for nothing has insensibly become for many the only possible way of making a living. It is not only the unemployed and unemployable who will drain the nation's wealth and give nothing in return. All performers of worthless work do that, even if they work themselves to death at it. Armies of salesmen plugging junk. The armies of workers madly churning out clothes that disintegrate in the first washing. Cars that wear out in the first two years. Houses that sag irreparably in the first spring thaw. Electric gadgets that promise a man health without the joy of exercise. Amusements that do not amuse. Cosmetics that don't beautify. Drugs that do not cure. You can go on. You can make a lot of lists of those kinds of things. That's stealing. How about business methods? Business methods. Paying employees cash under the table to avoid paying taxes or avoiding taxes. There's a guy in my congregation. I talked about this um, in one of my messages. And uh, he, was a, he was employed uh, immigrant uh, workers. And he was paying the immigrant workers under the table to avoid taxes. Now, I didn't know that. Um, three months later, this gentleman came into my office and he said... Uh, do you remember when you preached on this? I said, yeah. He said, well, I was convicted because I was paying my workers under the table and I decided I'm gonna do everything above board now. And so he did, so he was paying their taxes, he was doing all the things he was supposed to do. And his business took off in ways he couldn't even imagine. He said, I don't, I don't know what's happened, but he said, I, I really believe I was stealing and now I'm not and God has blessed my business beyond what I can even imagine because I'm operating it honestly. Now I know we can make a case for not paying our taxes since so much is wasted by the government. That's what elections are about. Okay, but we'll get into that some other time. Maxie Dunham says, one of the tragedies of our day is how the justice system treats the crimes of stealing. He shows a some parodies here. Poor people with no money to hire legal defense waste away in prisons for stealing a car or television, while officers of huge corporate organizations preside in posh boardrooms, though it has proven they have manipulated the stock market. We've seen defense contract cost overruns that steal millions of dollars from you, the taxpayer. $600 paid by the government for hammers that should cost $5. $28 for screws that should cost 10 cents. He says, ours is a society on the take and stealing is one of the most blatant sins. Well, stealing is a sin against God because it betrays our trust in him. It's a sin against humankind because it denies love and concern for others. Letter E. I'll just, I'll just list a few more of these. Plagiarism, plagiarism, stealing what someone else is writing and saying it's yours. It's easier to do than ever in school because you can go online and find everything. How about copyright violations? Copyright violations. Letter G, reputation. We can steal the good name of someone by malicious gossip or remaining silent. Stealing from someone by not expressing a word that might preserve their reputation. We can steal or be complicit in helping steal or destroy someone's reputation. Letter H, dignity. 
dignity, and this can be whether, whether in the past it was slavery, it could be servanthood today, subjugation, financial bondage. That's why there were laws in the Old Testament against usury or high interest. And we think in terms of the loan, loan shark who says, I'll, ch- I'll lend you this money and it's 10% a day, and if you don't pay, I'm going to send Jimmy Nonak to break your leg. Okay? And that's kind of what happens. But there are some areas in our country that are charging usury, amazing usury. Then there's something called bankruptcy. Let it right. Larry Burkett in his series, How to Manage Your Money, asked the question, is it scriptural to claim bankruptcy? Is it, is it, is it scriptural? Well, it seems logical if someone has incurred excessive debts, has truly a changed attitude, they should be able to start fresh. Doesn't it? Doesn't it make sense? Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. But bankruptcy is legal, isn't it? Yes, it is. But remember, there are a lot of things that are legal, but not moral. And I believe bankruptcy has legitimate uses. There's a, there's a moral case to be made for declaring bankruptcy. Medical bills, unexpected crises, business goes south. There are a lot of reasons. But one of the things I urge is caution when approaching something like bankruptcy, because many actions that we take are legal, but may not be moral. I know one fine, upstanding Christian man who is behind on all his bills. He was preparing to declare bankruptcy. So you know what he did? This is what he did. He went out and charged thousands of dollars for items on his credit cards, including a brand new big screen TV, sound system, etc., and then filed for bankruptcy. I was astounded. Was it legal? Maybe. Was it moral? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That was his value. He stole a lot from that. I also know of Christians whose business practice have declared bankruptcy several times over and over and over the years, never once felt like they had to pay their creditors what they owed. They justified it because it was legal. It was legal. Is it legal? Probably moral? No. I also know of a Christian who was forced into bankruptcy and then spent the next years paying his creditors back even though he had no legal obligation to pay back anything. And God blessed him in ways you cannot imagine because he did that. Bankruptcy for protection, chapter 11, that's a different thing because bankruptcy is filed in order to pay back. But being careful not to take a legal issue and impose morality on it. Say, what is God calling me to do in this game? How about keeping extra change? Some of you are going, change, we don't use cash. How does that work? <laughs> That's true. I once went into a local grocery store to buy two newspapers. One was 25 cents and one was 35 cents. And the clerk got confused and gave me 25 cents back after I gave her 75 cents. Now, I'm not patting myself on the back, but when I walked out the door and I said, wait a minute, I, I paid 50 cents now to see 75, I had to think, okay, 75 cents minus 55, I said, I owe over 15 cents. So I went back and I gave her 15 cents. She was confused, but that's okay. I was, I was, my conscience was clear. Had I kept that change knowingly, I'd be stealing. How about buying merchandise you know is stolen? 
I know nobody does that here, but that happens. Car, stereo equipment, computers, etc. Or letter L, stealing another's husband or wife. And we're going to be covering more about that when we get to the commandment 10. Letter M, stealing someone's job or livelihood. Remember all those sins of stealing against our fellow man are against God, as all sin is against God. And then there's one final way of stealing. One final way of stealing. Letter N is tithes and offerings. Whoa. I didn't know we were going to get into this. Okay, tithes and offerings. I don't, I don't talk about this very often, but we're going to talk about it today. Tithes and offerings. Malachi 3, 7 to 10 says, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how, how, do, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I didn't say that. God said that. That's, those are his words. That's a whole series. I preached a little bit on that about last year sometime. I don't remember. Now, I personally, I personally dislike trying to get people to do things for negative reasons. I once hosted a, uh, a parenting seminar with a Christian psychologist, and, and he, one of the things he talked about was uh, disciplining children. And he said, when you discipline children, he said, children under the age of three or four, and he said it's, it's a little bit subjective, but if children are under age three or four, they don't understand the reasons for discipline and punishment. They, they can't necessarily comprehend the nuances of a yes or no. Reasoning with children at certain ages just does not work. Children at that age just obey, he said, to avoid punishment. Okay? They can reason that. They do this and get their hands slapped, you know, get spanked. They, so they do it. You can't reason with that. If you see uh, somebody trying to reason with their two-year-old in the grocery store, get a clue. Is it, it, don't reason. You know, it does, they don't understand or comprehend. I, I've seen many a mother trying to explain in these comprehensive long, long phrases and big words to their two-year-old why they should not grab that candy, whatever it is. You, know, you just say, no, can't do that. Can't do that. Children do that. However, as children mature and grow, then they begin to understand. The yes and no are there to protect them and to train them to teach them right and wrong for their own good. Now, some people approach the relationship with God in the same way. Why do we obey God? Why do we obey God? Why do we follow God's top ten? To avoid punishment? A lot of people do that just to avoid punishment. If our reasons for, obey, are, are, for obeying God are to avoid discipline, we are young and immature in our faith. We obey God because God knows best and it's for our own good. We may not understand everything, but we understand that he's given us those guidelines not to punish us or to restrict us, but to keep us healthy and to keep us strong. And as we grow and mature spiritually, we no longer obey God's Ten Commandments to avoid punishment. We obey God because we love God and we trust God. Big difference. Big difference. We want to obey God because we trust it is good for, our, for us and good for our family, good as society. 
If we take the prohibitions of the Ten Commandments in a negative way, we are immature, lacking in understanding and comprehension. God's top ten, including the Eighth Commandment, are given to us for our protection, society's protection, our health, and our well-being. They are no more negative than a command telling your two-year-old not to touch the hot barbecue grill. The commandments are therefore very positive in their intent. I just wanted to do that. Catch me if you can. You shall not steal. Now, sometimes we transgress this command. And again, the good news is that Jesus came to pay the penalty for our failure to keep God's top ten perfectly. Romans 7, 7 says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I would not know what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. We don't receive God's approval or acceptance by keeping God's top ten perfectly. Our right standing in relationship with God comes through accepting his way to God, Jesus. This whole Christmas season is about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. He came to be born, and we embrace the child Jesus. But we must also embrace the Messiah on the cross because he paid the penalty that we, because we couldn't keep it perfectly, he paid the penalty so then we could have that relationship with God. Confessing and repenting, turning to God by faith and receiving his forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Then out of love for God, we then keep the 10 commandments or God's top 10. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And no matter what the commandment is, if, if we've stolen and defrauded someone, if God is speaking to you today to make it right with God and the persons, then respond and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it right this week, whatever that is. Catch me if you can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us guidelines. And I pray, Lord, today that you would continue to challenge us anew. That we would have a right relationship with you, understanding your, your boundaries and your guideposts and relationship with our fellow human beings. And God, that you would, would draw us close to each other and close to you. And Father, that in this time, especially in this Christmas season, as we celebrate this relationship we have with you. You became one of us. You became a human being to demonstrate who God is, to demonstrate your love, and then to love us by dying for us. And we know that you're alive today because you were resurrected. And I just thank you and praise you today that you stand ready to have a relationship with us. And we thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name.